the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Monday, March 20th, 2023. I am Seth Liebson, and the phone number is 602-508-0960. 602-508-0960. Someone was asking me earlier today, is it hard to uh, hard to come up with topics? No, it is not. They are coming at us fast and furious, aren't they? There is no rest for the American citizen. I wonder if it's true in other countries. I will... Um, I will I, I will promise you this over the next couple of uh, next few days or weekend at the latest. I'm going to look into whether other countries have the frenzy problem that we do. I will tell you my my guess is that they don't. My guess is that there is a uniquely American distraction with luxurious commentary and luxurious concerns. Um, it is it is a, country, a mark of our country going soft, which is. Something you can feel free to call in on if you want, not something I intended to even say as much as I already have on. What I wanted to say is that, as many of you know, one of the things I believe about a country, this country, which is torn disparately among and along many political and cultural lines, is that there is one remaining unifying thread, one thin remnant that holds us together, and it's the thread of fairness, we all may define it a bit differently, but we, most of us still generally believe in fundamental fairness. It should translate into the notion of decency, but it does not always. Still, usually and mostly, almost any child or adult understands the notion of something not being fair. We generally don't like bullies. We generally don't like seeing the weak victimized or tormented. And we usually don't like to see an injustice be rewarded. Again, generally, there are perversions and distortions of this. For example, there are justifications. There are people who make justifications for treating people differently, fairly and unfairly, based on their race, if historic discrimination can be alleged. Some fall on one side of that more than the other, but obviously we do see that still the justification for treating some people of minority races differently under guises affirmative of affirmative action is made on an appeal to a kind of fairness, that is to say historic or hysterical unfairness. It's all very debatable, obviously. I think you know where I stand on this, but hopefully you see my point. Correct or not, correctly argued or not, they're still at bottom is at least an appeal to the notion of fairness. The phrase etched into the top of the United States Supreme Court building is equal justice under law. In ancient Greek, this is a concept that goes back to Herodotus. Isonomia is the Greek word. It was the backbone of all democracy, the backbone of there being no distinction of rights between rulers and ruled. In his great book, The Constitution of Liberty, Frederick Hayek opens up with an epigraph from Pericles. It goes like this. What was the road by which we reached our position? What the form of government under which our greatness grew? 
what the national habits out of which it sprang. If we will look to the laws, they afford equal justice to all in their private differences. The freedom which we enjoy in our government extends also to our ordinary life. But all this ease in our private relations does not make us lawless as citizens. Against this fear is our chief safeguard, teaching us to obey the magistrates and the laws, particularly such as regard the protection of the injured, whether they are actually on the statute book or belong to that code which, although unwritten, cannot be broken without acknowledged disgrace. Close quote. Which is why there is also in these distortions and perversions of traditional norms of fairness great unfairnesses or great injustices, even when committed in the name of trying to right a past wrong. For example, the effort to decriminalize certain misdemeanors or to adjust downward certain felonies to misdemeanors is usually done in the name of some form of justice, to attempt some form of more fairness in certain communities. In the end, these efforts end up becoming quite will-o'-the-wisp or ignis fatuous, that is, deceptive or deluding. You see this a great deal in progressive prosecutions and prosecutors in the criminal law. For example, if you raise the level of cost or price to, or value to pro prosecute a certain property crime, as in California, for example, a theft of a $450 item while once prosecuted and now not, prosecuted unless it is $950, does allow the bragging right that there is less property crime, per se. But it does not fairly reduce property crime in fact, and may induce more of it, as it has. If you state you are no longer going to prosecute certain misdemeanors, as many district attorneys have said, it doesn't solve the crime problem, it solves the arrest and punishment problem. It is less fair to the community and the victims of the crime, but perhaps arguably in some sense fairer to a certain population that may be more involved in those crimes. If you are prepared to pervert universal standards or single standards of fairness or justice, you can make those claims of fairness. And that's the thing about fairness and justice. It can only be taught if there are universal and single standards. Anything less, even in invoking the words just isn't true justice. Consider Abraham Lincoln's lesson on this. His lesson was on the word liberty. He put it that the shepherd drives the wolf from the, sheep's, from the sheep's throat, for which the sheep thanks the shepherd as his liberator, while the wolf denounces him for the same act as the destroyer of his liberty, especially if the sheep is a black one. Plainly, the sheep and the wolf are not agreed upon the definition of the word liberty. So it would appear we are all operating these days, wouldn't it, with the wolf's dictionary when it comes to things like fairness and justice. The district attorney in New York City, Alvin Bragg, has downgraded 52% of felony cases to misdemeanors, which doesn't mean felony-type crime has been lowered. It just means it has been redefined. You can call, for example, an apple orchard a potato farm, but it doesn't mean you have less apples or more potatoes. It means you have more confusion. And thus the district attorney, and, th and though district attorney Bragg has knocked out the definition of a lot of felonies, actual violent crime, actual crime, has risen over 30 percent. That the victims are not told they are victims of felonies is cold comfort at best. All of this in the name of fairness. 
which makes a head-scratcher of the notion that Alvin Bragg has made of his office a paralyzing story. That is to say, a story that has paralyzed all other work there. The idea of indicting former President Trump on a seven-year-old misdemeanor, in fact. It is clearly a political prosecution, and it is a prosecution that has a great many implications. Before I go further, a few interesting conceits that we should probably be careful with or wary of. One, I'm not sure we do ourselves much favor in conflating the argument here. One can or could hate communism and Joe McCarthy at the same time in the 1950s. The problem that racked and wrecked too much of the left and liberalism in America in those days is that they could not make those distinctions very well. That is to say, they too easily slid into defenses of communism when they were and as they were denouncing Joe McCarthy. So I don't think it's particularly incumbent on anyone to be compelled to try and actually defend what Donald Trump's crime was. The underlying crime is, in fact, de minimis, but it's not civil disobedience and it's not heroic. It was, after all, all about a pretty lousy set of facts and actions to put them no higher. And if we are all being honest, in a better day, we would critique them much more so. Two, Donald Trump has every single right to call for peaceful protest. And that Democrats and the left think there is some exception for Donald Trump in calling for that is where we should probably be most concerned. If Jane Fonda called for a protest next week about anything, let us say abortion rights, who would denounce it with a call for prior restraint? After all, shouldn't they? Just last week on national television, she literally called for murder, her word, murder, of pro-life advocates and legislators. Does someone who calls for murder of those who advocate on behalf of a policy position vindicated by the Supreme Court and held by roughly 70 percent of the people get to call for a mass gathering without comment, concern or consternation? And has Donald Trump ever called for the murder of anyone? Three. It may not be wise to protest on behalf of Donald Trump should he be arrested, but as Democrats are lambasting his call for protest, how is it distinguishable from them lambasting his call for a political rally? In calling for his supporters to protest, Nancy Pelosi immediately said that was an incitement to violence. Her words. It was not violence or an incitement to violence when a riot broke out in Baltimore that she was asked about. She said people will do what people will do. And there was no denunciation of BLM protests and riots, even when congregate gatherings were forbidden under COVID protocols. And did we were told the purpose of those protests against historic racism as they were was as great a health threat requiring redress as COVID was. Four. But isn't this the game? Less rights for Republicans than for Democrats. Even if, say, those Democrats like Jane Fonda have called for murder. Would anyone object to her calling for a pro-choice protest the following week? And if you can say a protest is an incitement to violence, which protests are to be allowed and which ones not? Clearly, we have an answer. Protests Donald Trump calls for. Five. And what is the difference between a protest and a rally? One is a gathering to object to a social or political cause, person or issue. And the other is a gathering to support a social or political cause or person or issue. So if protests are incitements, how are rallies 
not incitements. If protests are to be forbidden, how are rallies to be allowed? The answer is they are not, at least not in the minds of today's Democrats and Democratic Party leadership. Justice, like fairness, like politics, is not measured or defended along universal and single standards to the left. They want to and think they can dominate it and dominate, if not own, the entire realm of what civil liberties and civil rights and political participation should be for or against. You have those rights if they are on behalf of a large D democratic cause, principle, person, or issue. This is what we call regime and opinion principle hierarchy. And if it is finally crime the Democrats and the Democratic Party at long last is worried about, well, all I can say is welcome to the party. What we know is that it is not a crime and criminal action that they are worried about. They have been downgrading and defending those crimes and political criminal actions and activities for years now, including rioting for fun and profit, including rioting that has cost dozens of lives. What they are worried about is not dominating and owning the realm of public policy and politics. And when it is peaceful protest and the First Amendment they wish to constrain, that is really the first thing the rest of us should be worried about. For all the talk of Republicans or Trump being the party of or embodiment of fascism, it is precious to me, to put it no higher, that the party calling for curtailed and cabined First Amendment rights for their opposition, rights they would never tolerate curtailing or cabining of or for their members, that Democrats can keep alleging fascism of their opposition is really quite precious after all. After all, what they have done is not only emblematic of fascism, it is the ignored warning of history. Reduce civil liberties for the opposition and justified violence for their own movement. We used to think, along with Oliver Wendell Holmes, that every idea had the potential to be an incitement. Today, only one party thinks that and about every idea of the other party. To get there is to illustrate the parlance and vernacular of our time, dominated as it is by the Wolf's Dictionary. We break these universal understandings, leading us, as Pericles put it, to our acknowledged disgrace. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Yeah, I guess these anniversaries, uh, last week was the anniversary, the three-year anniversary of 15 Days to Slow the Spread, and today's the 20th anniversary of the incursion into Iraq. Um, the rethinking on both is abstemious at best, isn't it? Um, we're, not, we're, not, we're not very good at self-reflection here. It kind of makes me think of... The line, I think it was Jurassic Park 2, Jeff Goldblum being assured that I'm not going to make any of the old mistakes. And he says, no, we're just going to make a whole bunch of new ones. But I'm not even that confident that we aren't going to continue to make the old mistakes. I'm still concerned about COVID protocols. That's what I guess we can call them, the COVID mitigation protocols. I'm still worried about those having been a test run. Is it your sense, I'd love the audience's response on this, is it your sense, and Bill, I'd love yours too, that 
now that even with everything we now know about vaccines and masks and social distancing, that the bulk of the people who were so uh, ardent about it, so militant about it, uh, so Martinet about it, do you think the bulk of them, we know not all of them, but do you think the overwhelming or the majority of them uh, would do it again? You think they would rethink any of it? You think they would have taken the lumps of true social science and true medical science and true physical science and true mental health and true every, economic science and true everything else and say, okay, yeah, we got that wrong. It would be nice if those who were the strongest advocates for not only liberating Iraq but trying to remake Iraq in the image of colonial America and those who were the most adamantine about the COVID lockdown protocol, uh, protocols, it would be nice if they would assure us that they learned from not just history but recent history and a little dose of humility to say, we got that one wrong. We got that one wrong. Now, I understand the cost of admitting that means that there's a lot of blood on your hands. There's a lot of lives on your hands. And there's a lot of unseen destruction, social and otherwise, social, mental and otherwise destruction on your hands. And a lot of family and friendship breakups on your hands and a lot of relationship. I, I understand that. I do. But is guilt assuaged by ignoring it? Of course, to be guilt, to have a guilt or shameful or regretful or apologetic or, you know, just a, just an, yeah, just an apologetic view of these things. You're not going to be a better person by ignoring it. You're not going to be a better person and you're not going to be a more socially happy person and you're not going to be a more well-adjusted personality by ignoring trauma you are responsible for in fact i would venture to say that people who don't deal with trauma and crisis and try to brush it under the rug will be less adaptive to social mores and less well-adjusted than those who confess their mistakes and confess their participation and confess their wrongs. There is no legal culpability here. There may be some moral culpability. But I also happen to think that if fairness is something that is one of the frayed threads that hold us together, so too is forgiveness. We are a forgiving country. But to for be forgiven, you do have to confess. You have to confess your mistake for us to forgive. And that's when the healing will begin. We're waiting on you. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. John Dombrowski is the founder and president of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. His website is grandcanyonplanning.com. It's a great website, good way to get in touch with him. He's also the host of his own radio show here. 
Every Saturday morning, it's the Word on Wealth, and it's at 7 a.m. John, we need you. We need you, man. How you doing? Yeah, well, I'm fine, but (laughs) I'm okay. I don't know if First Republic is. I don't know if UBS is. You help us understand what's going on here. Uh, UBS taking over Credit Suisse. Yes. Elon Musk says, wow, when it was announced they got a $100 billion credit line. Mm -hmm. Um, Who gets paid? Who more importantly, doesn't get paid. Iron, yeah. iron these sheets out for us. Yeah, um, isn't it funny how we all we want to say credit squeezes? We, we, yeah, what? A, yeah, yeah. Help me with that too. What I, is I it? Is it like Leibson and Dombrowski? Yeah, Whatever you so. say is fine. It's fine. Credit <laughs> yeah. Swiss. Credit Swiss. Yeah. Credit Swiss. I don't know. Let's but, let's do Swiss. Let's yeah. make an agreement between. There you go. Credit okay. Swiss. Credit Swiss. Now, uh, so it's interesting, right? If if a publicly traded company goes um, into bankruptcy. Um, then there's a there's a pecking order uh, as to how uh, the creditors will be taken care of. Now in this case, uh, Credit Suisse, Swiss, I'm sorry, is not uh, in bankruptcy, right? We've got uh, UBS uh, taking taking them over, buying them at a, a substantial discount, um, which is certainly going to you know maybe help UBS in the long term. But from what I'm hearing, the the rumblings on the street is is that UBS is not too excited about this this uh, you know situation that they're buying out the bank. It's really some pressure from the government that's mm-hmm. uh, you know um, the push, Swiss government. Them. Yes, yes, push Swiss, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very good, uh, pushing them into uh, you know into this position. And yeah. It was a similar arrangement back uh, during. Uh, 2008, when uh, we had yeah, some of the right. major firms here going under, and we saw you know companies like Bank of America uh, taking over Merrill Lynch and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not that they wanted to do that, but it was kind of what they were being pushed to do. Uh, so in this particular case, though, we think about people maybe who uh, own stock in a company that that stock is is safe, right? So, but that's not the case. So when Silicon Valley Bank went under, um, you had you know, in a situation where uh, you own stock in that company, that can go to zero, which means it can be worthless. Now, you also have people who lend money to these companies in the form of bonds. Mm-hmm. We all hear about having a diverse portfolio of stocks and bonds. Mm-hmm. If you have corporate bonds, which is what these are in this case, uh, in, in this particular case, $17 uh, billion, I believe it was, in U.S. Uh, dollars. Right. Uh, is going to be lost for the bondholders. So these people who had bonds, and usually corporate bonds would pay a higher rate, mm-hmm. especially these types of bonds that maybe had a little more risk associated with them. So that's why we, we buy these bonds oftentimes, because they're yielding a better interest rate. And so we feel, okay, the bank's probably a decent bet. We're going to buy the bonds. And uh, but in this case, when UBS took this over, part of that agreement was is that 17 billion dollars of bonds are wiped off of the books. Right. Uh, so those people are uh, certainly not going to they can fight it in some fashion or another, but they're not going to get any money out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in a case like um, um, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, they came in, they protected all the depositors in the bank in this case. Uh, but if you held bonds, you're going to be in that same position. Uh, if you had, uh, you know, bonds or if you own stock, uh, you're not going to get your money back. 
so you've got to be aware of these types of risks that are inherent in just about anything when you're investing, Seth, and that's uh, what's uh, why it's important to work with a, a good investment advisor. Of course. Make sure that you're getting uh, proper advice and that you understand the risks that you're taking. Because, you know, we would think normally, though, uh, that owning bonds is more of a conservative investment. Right. But, but there are different levels of bonds. We've heard of junk bonds yeah. or, hi, quote, high-yield yeah. bonds, yeah. which is what they're called uh-huh. nowadays. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, the other option is is you can buy, if you want income, you could buy United States Treasury bonds, mm-hmm. and that's what we've been doing for our clients here in the most recent times, paying a very good yield right now, uh, and they are backed by the federal government. So it's a little bit different than owning these corporate bonds. Yeah, right. Yeah, you have you have to understand that there are distinctions among these things. Did Janet Yellen speak too soon when she said there wasn't anything to worry about with our banking system? Do you think? Uh, well. I mean, I guess she has a little bit more knowledge than we do, but or, yeah, well, <laughs> but it looks like looks like you're right. There Every day be, it's a different bank, though, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know, First Republic certainly having some challenges. We right didn't now. wake up to First Republic till right. We yep. did. Yeah, yeah. Right. So there, we're going to see what happens with that bank, and okay. uh, if there will be others that may follow. But yeah. let's hope not. Yeah, obviously, let's yeah. hope not. Thank All you, right. John. Check you're out our best. website, GrandCanyonPlanning.com. You can reach us there. Securities and advisory services offered through Creative One Securities LLC, a member of Finran Syndicate, an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Creative One Securities. Not affiliated. You make a good point, John, about Swiss and Swiss. About mm-hmm. nothing else Swiss do we say Swiss. Nothing. Right. We don't say Swiss cheese. We right. don't say the Swiss government. <laughs> we don't say Swiss timepieces. You, you have Swiss chocolate, but that's spelled a little differently, I think. Well, we're calling it Credit Swiss from now on. Yeah. That's our new deal. All, All right. right. Bless you, sir. Thank, Thank you. you, sir. Bye. <laughs> Folks, how do you think the Biden administration is handling the economy? We've got banks failing, stock market volatility, possibly a recession coming. What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed? It's a portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like. No surprises. You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose, and no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. Your interest is compounded daily, you are paid monthly, and there are no fees. This is a secure, collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate. I'm talking about Y-Refi. They're local. You can visit with them. I know them well. They're trustworthy and honest, and you won't get a sales pitch. Y-Refi is a due diligence-approved firm, and you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, 10 and a quarter fixed rate of return. Just check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI34. InvestYREFI.com or 888-YREFI34. One of my favorite quotes of all time is Jim Mora, the old, um, where, where did he spend most of his time? With the Colts, would you say? I think. Yeah, New Orleans, then Indianapolis. New, New, New Orleans. And is his son the college coach or are they not related? Yes, his that, son that is a coach his, as well. Uh, the Huskies, right? Yeah, I, I don't know where he is now, so I, you've got one up on me I think there. UConn. If you need to guess a college sports mascot, just say the Huskies, and there's like a one out of – I mean, there's like a 10 out of 100 chance you'll be right, I think. 10% chance you'll be right. The Aren't there are a good. lot of Huskies? There's Yeah, and if you include Wildcats, yeah. it goes up to maybe 40%. Oh, really? That it's one of the two. <laughs> so Jim Mora, you want to do the audio? Okay, this is one of my – Bill Bill had this great thing with me on the break when I was asking about people who were wrong about – 
you know, their militancy and ardency with uh, COVID mitigation and masking and vaccines and social distancing. And I said, you think any of them are going to be apologetic? And he said, go back to Jim Mora. (laughs) Apologetic. Apologetic. Some of them are still doing it, Bill said. You're right. Do the Jim Mora. Playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs. You kidding me? Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. (laughs) Apologetic? Regretful? (laughs) Some of them are still doing it. He was uh, Jack Kemp's uh, college roommate. Jim Moore was. Anyway, little history there. I was, excuse me, I was talking earlier about, um, I guess it was in my monologue, about how you can redefine things, particularly when it comes to crimes. You can, you know, downgrade a felony to a misdemeanor, and you can refuse to enforce, you know, the violation of misdemeanors if you reduce the price or the cost or the financial amount to trigger a prosecution. But it doesn't mean that there are less misdemeanors or less felonies. In fact, the evidence has shown you're encouraging more of it um, by having less of a criminal sanction against it. Uh, Kind of a, who would have seen that coming, right? Oh, we're not going to arrest that. Oh, maybe we'll get less of it. No, the point was never to get less of it. The point was to not prosecute as much of it. That was the point. It was, you know, a prosecution point, not a victim point. The victims are still victims, and increasingly so, as crime, particularly in cities and, and states that experimented with this nonsense, has risen up. In New York, uh, with the DA, who's now all about some misdemeanor from seven years ago with Donald Trump, is all about that, has downgraded 52 felonies and not prosecuting them. Doesn't mean the felonies have ceased to exist. In fact, violent crime has gone up 30 percent over the last year in New York. It just means you don't uh, talk about it as a felony. You can, as I said, call an apple orchard a potato farm, but it doesn't mean you have, uh, you know, less uh, less apples or more potatoes. Um, it's just that um, you've called these things that we used to know by their proper names different things. It doesn't change the action or the thing itself. It's an interesting, actually, intrusion into the notion of the miracle of the common noun. The miracle of the common noun is, of course, that we all know what we're speaking about, And we all know what we're talking about. It permits reason. It permits rationality. It permits common language and common citizenry, if not common sense, by having agreed upon terms. This was the Aristotelian point of language and the human condition. Uh, The example we often give here is if I say I'm sitting at a desk. You may not know or care what color the desk is. You may not know how big it is, but you have the concept of what it is I'm talking about, even though there's no camera or television, uh, closed-circuit TV camera or, or, or picture of it, right? You, you have an idea. Oh, it's probably something flat with four legs or so, and it's holding up his computer and pen and Whatever, right? You you know all this by me just saying desk. Well, we have changed that, haven't we? We have tried to overcome, if you will, not just reason, but nature in changing common nouns. What were felonies? What were misdemeanors? Hey, how about what's a boy and what's a girl? We've not only tried to change that physically. Uh, we are not only convincing people they can change that physically, but they are trying to convince us against over and against what we can visualize and what we can know scientifically and genetically, that they are other than what they are. It is not only 
you know, the destruction of the language in its own sense of a problem. It's the, the destruction of reason and really the human place in the firmament of life. Um, the notion that we are not gods, we cannot do what nature does, um, we cannot overcome, we cannot superordinate nature, we cannot superordinate God, um, was our understanding. It certainly was our understanding in our founding when we appealed to nature's God for the equality of man as us understanding we are not gods, nor are we animals, um, to a place where we are now acting as if we are gods. You shall be as gods. It's the second oldest faith in the world, Whitaker Chambers put it, that you can be as gods. And that is what Marx had always thought. That is what Marx always believed. And I give you the world. And if you think it hasn't, I give you the times. If you think it hasn't intruded into this area that we're speaking of, which is, you know, courts and laws, then, of course, you're just wrong. You're just wrong about this. And who's left holding the bag at the end of the day? Every time we act as gods, there are victims. We victimize a certain, oh, we may elevate and the Superman may be proud that he's the Superman or, you know, the godlike creature may be happy and delightful as, as, as a king or as a royalty in the throne of or position of a god or a master over a slave who wouldn't want to have the you know benefits of being a master, I suppose, is the question, or a king or a god. I suppose that's a question. But do understand that those unique one-offs of people who put themselves in those positions do leave an unenviable proportion of the rest of us who are there, say it with me, in crime and everything else, victims. Groupthink can prevent you from seeing the obvious. In 2008, Groupthink remained in denial when it was obvious that mortgage-backed securities filled with subprime loans were a house of cards. Midas Gold Group has been telling people the obvious for years. A system of currency built on debt is not stable. The market is not real. Most importantly, they've said that the banking system is unstable and treasuries are not risk-free. Abandon the groupthink of mainstream media and bankers and get a different perspective from Midas Gold Group. Wise diversification involves having wealth and money outside of the banking system. Call the veteran-owned Midas Gold Group to look into safeguarding your money with the stability of gold. Their phone number is 480-360-3000. That's 480-360-3000. Or check them out at MidasGoldGroup.com. That's MidasGoldGroup.com. Speaking of redefining things, by the way, I mentioned how we are doing it in all areas of life, civil and criminal. You know where else we're doing it? We're doing it with immigration, particularly that nettlesome word illegal. Our friends at Issues and Insights point out that the Biden administration's bulletin board, also known as the Washington Post, featured an article last week. The headline was this, quote, Biden takes heat for border measures, but illegal crossings are down. Close quote. I hope you're getting trained to understand these headlines now. Various other news outlets echoed the theme, theme using terms such as plunged and plummeted to describe what is, in fact, a record high number of illegal crossings in both January and 
in February. So how did the administration pull off this plunge? Can you figure it out? By narrowing the focus and by redefining what counts as an illegal border crossing. The Biden administration is starting using its port parole program shell game to feign lawfulness and distract from the true numbers of illegal aliens entering the U.S. each month. Joe Biden started this parole program for Venezuelans and in January expanded it to include Cubans, Haitians and Nicaraguans. People from those nations can get into the country without a visa if they show up at a port of entry and agree to some minimal rules under a supposed two-year parole. The administration has directed would-be illegal aliens of numerous nationalities to use the CBP-1 app to make an appointment at a port of entry where they will be paroled into the country, according to the Daily Signal. The CBP reports that illegal crossings by people from those four countries fell from 84,190 in December to 2,050 during February. Well, no kidding. Why cross illegally when you can tap an app and get into the country without having to follow the rules to enter legally? And then you're not counted as an illegal entrant, just as they redefined vaccines, too, I guess, huh? We really have to get a new dictionary. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.